What's going on, guys? AJ here back again with another episode of the E1B2 Collective Podcast. And yes, I am here to bring you yet another episode of Let's Talk Startups. And I am bringing you the the amazing, the great Phil Castro. I am uh, I'm super stoked and hyped that I was able to have this interview and be able to have this conversation and be able to bring you guys this content. Uh, Phil Castro, guys, is out of the greater Chicago area. He runs a brand uh, called Startup Bootcamp, and he runs a couple other projects and brands and advises uh, another, another few as well. And he's just a really great guy, a really great entrepreneur, really thoughtful, and uh, someone that I really respect uh, from afar. And I was very, very very, very hype that I was able to bring him onto the podcast, guys. We talked about, we jumped off the conversation, frankly, with uh, a few a few failures that are uh, that are in his wheelhouse right now. Potential failures. Let me correct that because it's not uh, it hasn't completely gone to, uh, to to zero yet. But he's going through some complexities right now uh, on the backs of COVID nineteen with one of his companies, and so we talked about the complexities there. And he was very vulnerable and very real, and we kind of walked through how he strategically is thinking about what he's going to do with his brand and, and the decisions that he is going to make. We then talked about a little bit of some internal communications and leadership and employee experience involving that brand. And then we shifted over to, to the startup uh, startup bootcamp, um, the startup bootcamp uh, uh, content there. And we just started talking about the different projects and different events and all the different things that are happening there. And then we just kind of got really nuanced when it came to just talking about all things startups, guys. Uh, he's a great operator. You know, I'm a decent uh, operator myself. And so we really got into the nuanced conversations of how do you form partnerships? How do you get in touch with investors? What great startups and founders should be thinking about? He gave a few tips that I really believe every single startup should take seriously and really think about and try to apply into their, their their repertoire as they're building their brands. And so, again, I'm just super, super grateful that I was able to have Phil Castro on today's podcast. I will say, however, uh, there was a bit of choppiness in certain parts of the episode, but I gave it a good listen. And I genuinely believe about 80% of the content is fully clear. You'll really enjoy it. And, and, and in those moments where you feel there's a little bit of choppiness or a little bit of moments where it's not as clear, please excuse me for that. Um, it just was the internet on my end was not the greatest that day, but uh, Phil was a, a real trooper and we stormed through. So again, Listen to this episode of Let's Talk Startups. Really appreciate and look up Phil Castro. He's an amazing entrepreneur. He's putting out a lot of great content, a lot of great events. He's a great advisor and mentor for you guys if you want to get in touch. And uh, let's jump right into the episode. Thanks a lot, guys. Cool. Hey, Phil. Uh, appreciate you being on this podcast. Uh, again, I again I, I really was... Uh, very adamant and very persistent. So I uh, appreciate the fact that you respect that um, that consistency and that persi- persistence. And it's just an honor to be able to talk to you. I know for from afar, you've been doing some really interesting things in the startup world, which is why I sought you out. And um, so yeah, so please just give us give us your ninety second, your two minute, your your thirty eight minute. I don't know. Some people had longer intros than others, and then um and and kind of what you're working on now and. And then what we'll do is we'll actually hop directly into the conversation we were just having offline um, and then we'll get going. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. And then I would like to say, first off, perseverance always wins and you do it quite well. So props to you for that. And everybody listening, you should definitely take notes. 
Uh, second thing, uh, myself, um, I'm not going to ramble too much on this, but basically longtime entrepreneur, startup veteran, had a very uh, unique start to my career in the VC slash startup world about 13 years ago. Um, didn't Wasn't a venture capitalist myself, but I worked for uh, some startups from a very large uh, VC firm that were backed by a VC firm, and we were working out of the same office. But a lot of the startups that were coming out of there were you know, very well-known, big names. Um, one of the fast-growing ones in history was Groupon that came out of there and many others that were, you know, unicorns and, and high valuations. But anyway, that's where I kind of caught the startup bug. And um, at the time I was doing like sales, biz dev and marketing and people that, you know, came out of there, all of them became startup founders at some point because you just have this uh, incredible experience that's, I guess, invaluable, um, you can say. Um, so yeah, so started a few companies and then I was traveling around the country, giving back to the next wave of entrepreneurs with a business I called Startup Bootcamp. And today I've helped almost 4,300 founders around the country. Uh, I would just go from city to city and go to the best incubator and accelerator program in that city. Uh, and then I would put on this one to two day workshop and I would bring in amazing startup professionals, usually, you know, startup veterans like myself, people that are even smarter than I am, uh, bring in some investors, um, you know, 200, $300 million funds. They talk about their investment thesis and why they skip out on some investments and make other ones. And my job as the event host is to extract the juiciest amount of information in the shortest period of time. And I think I uh, am pretty suited, well suited to do that, just given my background. And um I have about 330 testimonials about founders raving about the experience. So they absolutely love it. It's definitely like modern. Um, it's more of a in your face, transparent type of raw format rather than like a buttoned up, you know, getting an MBA or something like that type of format. And um, I had slash have a startup called Bar Pass, which is kind of on pause right now because of the pandemic. Um, our job was to put butts in seats at bars and restaurants by offering live deals. Every time somebody walked through the door, we get uh, a cut of between five and $7, like a commission. And we would know this because the GPS would track it when they walked in to the event. Um, but again, that is on pause because of the pandemic. And then last but not least, uh, won a bunch of awards, 35 under 35 startup of the year, young leaders in tech, most innovative entrepreneur, been in a bunch of magazines, uh, Forbes, Inc., Tasty Trade, BuzzFeed, WGN, ABC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I hate gloating. I hate talking about myself, but I think sometimes uh, it's needed like right now. So hopefully that gives you a better idea of who I am in a nutshell. But the important takeaway is I like helping early stage entrepreneurs. Well, look, man, you don't have to be shy about gloating at all. You know, uh, I come from... Um, I come from very humble beginnings and I consistently have tried to level up my, my success in life. So uh, I am, I am one to not be shy. And then I, you know, I was a, I was a former all American athlete in high school and then went on to get a four ride D one scholarship. And so it's in my DNA as a, as an athlete and a football player to brag a bit and to, and to look, look dudes directly in their face and tell them I'm going to run them over um, and then do so. Uh, uh, and then, so I was going to go on. So I, I was actually going to get a little inappropriate and say a couple more things, but I'm not going to do that. So uh, anyway, it is in my DNA to be a little bit braggadocious. So please don't, don't be shy with that because um, 
I, uh, I, I think it's connected to, to confidence and I think confidence leads to uh, great execution at times. And I think it's needed when you're, when you're trying to build something that is so unpredictable and, and uh, the likelihood of success is so, is so small. So I think if you, if you have cheerleaders uh, within your, within your team and you need to be the biggest one. So. That's true. Uh, and you gotta, and you gotta convince yourself every day that you're right and you're up to something. So exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's not just everyone else. It's also to yourself. No. Yeah. So before we jump into your, your startup here, cause I remember we talked about that right before we hopped on here. I do want to ask you kind of just a personal question is um, we had, we had one really nice conversation for about 40 minutes a while back and I got to know some things and I, and I continue to kind of stay in tune with what you're working on and do my research. But um, I didn't know your, I didn't know about your mass um, executions within the VC and then really some of the partnerships that you were creating with incubators around the country. Um, give me just ad hoc right here. Like I didn't even prepare for this, just some, some advice around um, when you were approaching these, these, and you use the word high level or, or, or some of the best incubators, because right now, I mean, there's just a ton of them and some are really producing really great companies and really working with great founders. And then others are kind of like glorified co-working spaces if we're just going to be straight up here. So yeah. g- give me, give, give me an advice or two, you know, with the work that I'm doing, um, my entire, my, my entire business model within one of the four companies I'm running is, I need to have substantial integrated partnerships or true relationships with VCs and or really high level incubators. Um, uh, It's just a really good thing for me to do. And that could look like a multitude of things, events kind of like what you were doing, um, integrated kind of solutions where we're kind of just there in-house. And I mean, there's a lot of different options we don't need to get into, but what advice can you give me? And, and I'm sure to the listeners that are either a, a founder trying to get into these incubators and get in front of these VCs, or what, what can you tell me? What advice can you can you give to me around how you designed those partnerships and, and galvanize those relationships? Yeah, uh, sure. So uh, first, I think it's important to to dice up who we're talking about because what your your service offerings and your pitch to a VC is completely different to an incubator, to an accelerator. So let's just break down the incubator and accelerator first. Um, first, you have to understand the differences between the two. So uh, they're not, they shouldn't be used interchangeably because they're quite different. So an incubator is what is of an incubator is basically out of giving them some resources um, and, and usually they pay a monthly fee to actually work out of this uh, facility. Now, um, an accelerator is quite different than an incubator because this is the, the walk portion. So this is where you already have an established business typically, and they put you through a rigorous program that's usually 12 weeks long in order to complete it. And they have you, you know, jump through a ton of hoops in regards to education, outreach, um, you know, uh, meeting with investors, doing a demo day. So this is just much more complex and for companies that are a bit more established and more serious. So identifying the differences is important right off the bat. Um, now, going back to how you approach them, if you wanted to you know, work with them, uh, from an incubator standpoint, it's quite easy because they accept almost anyone. You could literally just go there and pay their monthly fee of whatever, 200, 300 bucks 
and you can get, you know, a cubicle or whatever they give you. Uh, and, and basically you work out of there every single day, but you also have access to some additional resources that you can utilize. From an accelerator standpoint, uh, you know, depending on which accelerator you try and, and um, apply for, they usually accept anywhere from 0.01%, like the Y Combinators and Techstars of the world, all the way up to 10% of the, you know, smaller, maybe Chamber of Commerce that, that offers an accelerator, and then everywhere in between. So um, to say it's harder to get into an accelerator than an incubator is just a true statement. It's, it's way more harder. And the more prestigious name of the accelerator and track record of the accelerator, the harder it is it's going to be to get in there. So that's where you get like zero one zero point, I'm sorry, 0.01% of acceptance rate for like Techstars or Y Combinator. You have like you know, a hundred thousand people that are applying for each batch and they're picking like 12 or something like that. It's something ridiculous. So hopefully that helps distinguish the two. No, that was very helpful. Uh, give, give us a few tidbits on, um, from, from, from service providers, from individuals that are trying to create events. Like how did you go about those partnerships? I'm, I'm a big partnership design guy. So you said you were going to a lot of these accelerators and or incubators and you were going in and holding these events, bringing in investors. Uh, how are you, how are you creating those partnerships and what was your initial pitch and, and did you have a lot of friction initially or did it kind of, was it a smooth sailing when you, when you walked in? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a smart question. I think that uh, in the beginning it was definitely not smooth sailing. So let me explain what exactly happened. In the beginning, I used um, local influence to do an event in my city, Chicago. So I did an event there and it went really well. And I didn't know if it was gonna go well, to be honest with you. I just kind of like tried something and put it on Eventbrite and sold some tickets and boom, it did good. So I did it again. I think it was like two, three months later and then that worked. So I'm like, okay let me try and do this in another city. But lo and behold, you know, it's not the easiest to break into these, you know, different markets, especially if you don't have like a well-known name in that market per se. So what happened was the initial incubator that I started hosting with, um, they gave me, you know, good referrals and said, this is a legit workshop. And I collected testimonials from the attendees and I, you know, passed that on. So this made it easier. And by the time I want to say like six to eight months went by something like that. And I probably did like seven more events at, at this point, it was getting easier and easier and easier. And then after year one, it's like, they start reaching out to you and they're hitting you up saying, Hey, can you come here and do this event? You know, pre COVID, obviously, can you come here and do this event? We want to you know pack the house and we want to have a great reputation. We would love to do your event here. So it kind of like, <laughs> there's like an inflection point where it's like they're chasing after you rather than vice versa. And you're looking for places to host the event at. So just keep killing it with, you know, with, with your uh, initial events that the, the breakthrough ones, we'll call it um, collect testimonials and then ask for referrals from the venues. And I'm sure they'll be happy to do so, especially if they hear such positive feedback. And that's exactly what happened with me. One small little uh, caveat here, or, or, or small little detail rather, that I would love to figure out, and then let's go straight into uh, what's been going on with your startup here. Uh, were you? Because I like to get as granular as I can with this with this podcast. It was a uh, it was something that I felt as a as a difference be between a lot of other podcasts where I like to get super super tangible. So one little one little uh, section here. Did you do a revenue split 
when because you, you said you sold tickets so it wasn't it wasn't a situation where uh you were just paying for access for, to a portion of their physical facility and holding an event was it or was it that or was it hey you just paid a certain portion and you took that amount out of what you were getting from your top line revenue of the sales you were generating or was there any other additional fees that you paid to that to those accelerators and incubators yeah uh well at first i wanted to go down the route of what you said with the revenue split but they were not having that they were basically saying you have to rent out the room flat out this was at first by the way this was you know when i literally first started doing this um then i'm like okay well i guess i will you know pay the whatever two thousand dollars to rent the room and then I um, you know charge in 100 200 bucks a ticket or something like that so I do the math and figure out where I could break even where I could make profit etc um, and then after a while uh, to be honest with you it didn't even make sense to do the revenue split now that I look back like you know even six seven months from the inception like I wouldn't want to do the revenue split that wouldn't even work out in my favor so I'd rather just pay up front a thousand, two thousand bucks for a room rental if I had to, because uh, if I did a revenue split, I'd be losing money rather than making. And the and the fact that you were getting, you know, when you when you were getting the VCs in the room, I'm sure your pitch to them was like, look, we're gonna have some uh, some really talented entrepreneurs where you can get a, you know, you can get a crack at building some relationships and, and getting some deal flow. So I'm sure it was a no brainer for them to show up. Uh, I'm sure you didn't have to kick out the uh, uh, extreme prices that a lot of these VCs pay for speaking events. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. Like they're more than willing and happy to, to participate um, and come to an event um, free of charge because that is exactly what they should be doing anyway. They're trying to, you know, increase deal flow, at least the smart ones are trying to increase deal flow and just get a, as many touch points as possible and, and keep their um, uh, finger on the pulse you know, especially in their city, geographically speaking, to see uh, what kind of startups are being produced out of there. So it's in their best interest to come to an event where, you know, there's a bunch of startup founders and they're, they're pitching their idea. And it's especially with like a, a, a well-known company or a well, um, I guess, a, a, a well-rounded slash uh, testimonial heavy uh, uh, program that's already been in multiple cities. So they know that, okay, this is a legit, you know, they, a lot of people are saying great things about it. We're going to go to it because there's probably going to be good founders and they probably have, you know, good ideas and good businesses. And usually that comes with good traction. So they're more than willing to attend just to listen to the pitches. Exactly. All right. So let's, um, let's get into some things that are not super fun, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's helpful to talk about. I think, um, um, you know, with the work that I do, I don't know how much you remember, Phil, but, you know, my background is I, you know, I built a couple companies early in my career. Uh, I mean, I'm still early in my career. I'm 30, going on 31 here. So I'm talking like I'm 47. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, from 19 to 26, built a couple companies, um, on to a few more now, uh, went in-house for five years and was ahead of people. So I always have an interesting point of view and a different perspective at times when it comes to a furlough or um, letting go or just how to go about handling situations. But I don't think anybody was prepared for, for this situation. So talk to me about the business model a bit. You gave us the macro kind of concept of what it was uh, besides the, 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 the obvious reason, which is 
for a significant amount of time, most of the establishments that you were referring to were literally closed. Um, yeah. What were some other issues? Talk to me how you got where you are here, and 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 let's maybe let's maybe problem solve maybe live here if you want to, or or at least give us some value to, yeah. to, to others around what's been going through your head and how you've been trying to handle it. Yeah, for sure. And um, just for the the audience sake, I just want to clarify that. Um, we're talking about two different companies here. The first company that we're talking about, I had uh, way before the pandemic, that was a startup. And then a second company that I had on the side that I was just flying around the country, basically doing some events, one or two per month, that was called uh, the Startup Bootcamp. So just to clarify, there's two different businesses that we're speaking of. So you're, you're Anthony, you're, you're talking you about that. the first business of Bar Pass, which was before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit and everything went to shit. Is that what you're talking about? I am. Thank you for that. That was a, that was a poor facilitation job on my end. Sorry, listeners. Uh, yes, we're talking about that company. Okay, cool. Just to clarify. So yep. yeah, so that uh, business, again, um, we basically would offer live deals uh, at local bars and restaurants. And then when people claim them, they would walk in the door, the GPS would recognize that they walked in and then we'd get a commission for every time we put a butt in the seat. Essentially, we were like a digital promoter, you can say, that just used um, you know, data, AI and technology. Um, so um, with that, all the bars actually shut down right around, I think it was early March. They started around early March and then, you know, depending on what state you're in, some held on for another month or so, but then all of them shut down. So right now we're in month 11 that all bars were shut down and we have not really been operating a business for 11 months. Uh, it was highly unfortunate, obviously not too many people can plan for something like this, but what you do is, uh, you know, you could either sit there and sulk, which I will admittedly um, let you know or let everyone know that I did for about a week, maybe two weeks at the tops, uh, or you can pick yourself back up and you can uh, figure things out and say, okay, this is something that's serious. It's obviously not going away, at least not anytime soon. So we got to figure shit out. So that's exactly what I did. So there's a couple things that I did. One, um, I, I made the team lean and mean, <laughs> let's call it, uh, which, which wasn't the easiest thing to do, but, but I did that too. Um, I went back to the team, the, the, the devs, and figured out a way to kind of have a post-COVID product. Now, I don't, to, to be honest with you, I don't know when, if and when it's going to be released. I hope sooner than later, it just depends on the landscape but there's functionality in the product that helps bars adapt during these rough times. So for instance, it gives you the ability as a bar owner or manager to put a minimum on the check for every patron that walks in. So, you know, real estate is quite scarce, uh, especially after COVID with like, you know, 25% capacity, 50% capacity in the country. So with that, they know and realize that their consumers that are coming in that are saying they want to attend their event and frequent their bar as a patron are going to put their money where their mouth is and say, we're going to spend at least 40 bucks when we walk in or whatever the amount is that the bar manager sets. When they do that, they also have the ability to put a discount if they hit their threshold. So if you spend 40 bucks, you get 10% off. Like that's their incentive, they're incentivizing the consumer. And then of course the bars are happy because they're getting higher sales rings, especially with lower um, capacities. So that's like one of the features that we added to it. Now, are we gonna release it? I don't know. 
I really don't know because of COVID. I have to figure out the landscape and how long it's going to last and how it's going to affect bars and which ones are even open after the fact. So that's Let's still a big question mark. Um, and and um, I'll pass the ball to you in a second. But what I was going to say is, so that's one thing I have to figure out, you know, the, the product and how it's going to evolve. The second thing is, how am I going to make more money to compensate for the year of no money? <laughs> so that's why I lean into the other business that I had that was more of a passion project, I guess you can call it. But I, I lean really hard into it. And that took the driver's seat for the past year because I'm an entrepreneur. So I don't want to go and get a nine to five job. That's like, you know, that's like hell to, to me. Um, so I got to figure out a way to just take the other company and, and make more revenue from it. So that's what I've been doing is doing more events, bigger events, selling more tickets, um, coming up with a private program to have selected startups, you know, go through this accelerator type feel program. And you just got to diversify basically to make up for the lost income. So there's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot here to unpack. I have a ton of questions. Um, so yeah. <laughs> how many people did you have uh, outside of the devs? For what? For Bar Pass are you talking about? Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Eight. Actually, well, 10 because there was two new ones right before COVID hit. And, 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 and were you finding success before COVID hit or were you kind of just launching? Uh, a little bit of both. It was like, it was put it this way we were taking our time and trying to like understand the processes before ramping up. But then I was getting ready to ramp up and um, invested a lot of time and, and money into a, a version two, which was much more robust and ready for scaling. So we were about to scale to different cities. So it was like about to happen. And then we got done in March, the, the first week of March, we got done with a version two. We were about to start beta testing and then everything happened. So I knew that it was really poor timing <laughs> and we spent a year building it, you know, it was, a, it was a long time building this version too. So it's just sitting there now collecting dust. Was this uh, was this bootstrapped or was this VC backed? It was bootstrapped. Um, I bootstrapped everything from previous, I had um, some cash from previous companies. So I bootstrapped everything. Got it. Got it. Um, and that, that probably is a decent thing too. Uh, in this, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that maybe. I don't know if you have a different point of view. I'm all, I, I've always been a bootstrapped, really organic guy, but uh, I, I obviously have no problem with. Again, that's a whole nother beast in a conversation in itself because that can bring that can bring its own pressures and complexities as well. So, but that in this particular situation, I'm sure it makes it a bit more simple, maybe. But, um, so okay, w w was this located only in in, in Chicago? The product? Yeah, it was located only in Chicago, um, but I was looking to go to two other cities in the next four months, right around summertime. Got it. Was there a reason why you started just in Chicago? Was it just from a, just make it simple, slow rollout? Or, I mean, because since it's a technology, I'm sure you could have substantially started building real infrastructure relationships in, in other cities pretty quickly, no? Yeah, you could have, but uh, strategically, I didn't want to. Um, yeah. you know, this kind of stuff I've been doing a long time, and I know for a fact that um, usually with uh, high growth stuff, to an extent, so they get a choice. Factors like um, capital, uh, competitive landscape, <clears throat> timing, et cetera. 
And with mine, I had uh, favorable terms in these categories that I just mentioned. So I was able to move a little bit slower than usual and kind of tweak the knobs and, and you know, figure out what my KPIs are and the kinks uh, and then go like balls to the wall after that. So that's what I did. I like, kind of like took my time to figure things out. Of, of uh, money, so like it was going in the right direction, but I fuel on the fire and go to different cities because what you want to do is you want to nail it before you scale it. It's it's like a rule of thumb in the startup world, and I wanted to take my time really nailing it before scaling it, and I felt that I was in a good place in March of last year, um, and that's why we were ready to go to to the two different cities. And then after two cities, you probably went to another four, you know, two thousand and twenty. more cities you know kind of take the methodology and see what's working and then like just duplicate it in other markets no it makes a ton of sense um my initial thoughts are this so you you know so miami uh texas now and even here in maryland and baltimore i mean these bars are they're open man i mean so what's been happening in your head around that i mean i'm sure you've been seeing this and other, you know, other states as well. I mean, there are about 50, sometimes 75% capacity at the moment. I mean, some of the relationships you're having right now and, um, you know, what's happening in Chicago, is that not the case of the year? And then have you started planting some seeds and building some relationships with with bar owners and club owners in, in other cities that are opening um, already or have already been at 50, 60, 80% capacity? Um few things. One, we don't touch clubs at all. It's only okay. bars and restaurants. Okay. Um, two, uh, it wouldn't make much sense. And here's why, because you remember when we got that second wave four months back or, or was it six months back now? It was a while ago. We got the second wave. Yeah. God forbid I do all this work and spend money and time and energy. And the next wave comes right after, because mm -hmm. they're, they're the first per people that are opening up. Like Austin just announced that it's a hundred percent open. Fully. You know, yeah. fully. And I think that is not a bright idea. And, you know, regardless of politics or not, I'm just saying common sense and just looking at science, it's probably not the best idea. No. Um, so I would not, I would not be surprised if another wave, even if, and they have to, you know, and, and if that, if that happened, after we quote unquote did a soft launch over there, that could be the death of the company within itself. You know, early, the earlier you are in a startup, the more shaky grounds you're in, no matter what, you know, unless you like, you know, raise a crazy amount of money and your runway is just infinite, I guess. But besides that, I would say majority of startups, 95% of them, you know, the earlier, earlier in the startup, the more scary it is because mistake into the ground you know it's already been without any revenue so could you imagine if i put money and time and resources and effort into launching into a second city and then a month later it just gets hit and they're closed down for another four months because they have to regroup because there's a spike from covid i don't know it's just madness to me uh last question here because there's a lot there's a lot to unpack on this and this will probably stick the entire episode my, my last one probably will be this phil um you know being as though being as though people operations strategic employee experience 
uh, leadership. I mean, these are things that are just deeply in my DNA, in my day-to-day. Talk to us about, are you, are you comfortable sharing maybe some things that you maybe missed the mark on from like an internal communications perspective? And talk to me about some of the things you did a great job on from an internal communications perspective with your team uh, relating to these things. Because I think a lot of companies have had a fair share of, the, of both mistakes and, and great efforts when it comes to communicating to their team during these times. Uh, so what things I did right versus wrong during the pandemic? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, from internal communications with your team, just around yeah. strategy, decision-making, what's some things you, if you could be vulnerable that you didn't really do too well? And then, of course, I don't want to put you on the on the seat, seat there, so definitely talk about things you probably did do a really great job of that you're proud of. Yeah, I mean, I think at first, um, when it first came through, uh, I didn't really know how to handle it, nor did I even take it that serious, to be honest with you. I just didn't think that it was going to be to the level that it was and extreme that it was. So I was probably on the quote unquote late end in regards to adapting. Um, just because I don't know if I'm not sure internally, like I'm not sure if I didn't want to believe it. Or, or what, but I just didn't think it was going to be that serious and linger this long. <laughs> and then after a while, you know, uh, you know, the, the statistics proved me wrong, my initial assumptions. Um, so that was bad on my part. Um, and I didn't have anything in place really, because it was nothing, it wasn't really remote, to be honest, it wasn't virtual. Um, I think that I probably used Zoom four or five times before the pandemic. So it's not like I was used to that. So I had a, it was a learning curve to, to kind of get used to everything going virtual and all that BS. But the things that I did right is I definitely adapted, I think, really well after accepting the fact that it was here to stay. So, you know, all, all the communication, uh, all the communication tools, um, I started, you know, getting to know them and utilizing it better. And even like little things like just features and, you know, Slack and et cetera. Um, but started doing that really well. Then he started moving um, the real events for my other company that were all in person before COVID, 100% of it was in person to the virtual setting, which sounds easy, but it's actually not because you have to like, there's a ton of things you have to do and get used to. And, you know, the impactfulness kind of decreases um, just because you're not there in person. So you have to make up for it in different ways. And I think I did that really well. Um, and then in regards to my startup bar pass that's on hold. Um, you know, I think I'm doing everything that I can. Um, I have a, I have a new quote unquote product that's going to kind of fit the new quote unquote normal and I'm seeing when to release it. And, um, to be honest, I don't know when and if I will, and I'm just waiting to, to see, you know, the landscape. So to answer your question, um, probably waiting too late to adapt, but then, um, for the positive side, I adapted quite well once it resonated and said, okay, this is here to stay. And I, once I was accepting that. <laughs> Talk to me about, um, well, first, let me say this before we even move on. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and, I, and I know that's probably an odd thing to say, or maybe not, but I, I've been saying it to a lot of people. I, you know, being someone that, you know, I was personally furloughed when COVID-19 first, first hit, um, now I'm a, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since 19. So I, I, I kind of already had an immediate pivot in mind and I just kind of 
executed it and didn't really, you know, and this is a very, you know, I've tried not to say this, but I feel comfortable to even kind of say it now. Cause I think, I think people that listen to this podcast know me well enough where I hope I don't get too much heat for this, but you know, outside of the, outside of the, you know, the, the empathy and the, in the, and the, what am I trying to say? The empathy and just, just how bad I felt for so, so many at a health level. Um, and then obviously look, everyone knows my skin color, my complexion, and they know my perspectives in, in life. And so, I mean, COVID, and then obviously a lot of the, the racial movements happened very, very at a, at a similar time. And so those things, you know, again, race related emotions with that, with my mother, she took that very hard. And then health wise, you know, my dad is, uh, uh, severe diabetes and and he cannot by any means get this and so at an emotional level I have a ton of empathy but at a pure business level I really made the pivot pretty quickly but you know I'm thankful that I, I was not an entrepreneur at the time that this first happened and so I want to say directly to you I'm sorry I've said this to so many other of my fellow colleagues and and, and other founders that I know and I talk to uh this is not fun and um I'm sure those two weeks were not were not a fun situation for you. No, but the good news is that um, tough times don't last, but tough people do. So if you persevere, just like you persevered getting this <laughs> this uh, meeting set up and podcast set up uh, by pinging me, same thing with with life and business and entrepreneurship. You know, if you just power through, you're going to make it out alive. You just got to have that right mindset, and that's not so it's more of the how how do we get out of here what do we do next how do we make it even better than it was before uh, even if you have to you know shift some gears and things look a little bit different um, on your end in your personal life or business life how do you get to that point where you're closer to back to happiness and back to quote-unquote normal feeling at least so I think that that's where I'm at now and I'm um, for sure you know in a good spot regardless if what happens if COVID ends up killing my original startup, then that's fine because I have a backup plan, you know, and there's many uh, letters in the alphabet. So if plan A doesn't work, then go to plan B. Exactly. Um, so I'm looking at the list that you sent over here uh, a while back of topics, something that stuck out to me that I really want to dive in on. Um, I'm someone that will f probably forever and always bootstrap companies, probably honestly, because the type of companies I, I, I build are, are not really interesting to VCs or angels or anyone that could invest in them. Um, so that's probably its its own thing. But you sent over to me a topic that says, you know, building a national brand and beyond without spending uh, money. Um, I'm fascinated by that. Um, <laughs> the, the, the backbone of my entrepreneurial life has always been partnerships. Uh, I made a very, very, very huge strategic one uh, at 19 with Under Armour when I built my first company. Um, and that that partnership um, bug bit me immediately. And then I went on to build another four really major ones with that company that allowed us to scale really fast. And so I, I always try to build partnerships. I think it's the DNA of, of a sustainable business. If you can have great partnerships, great staff, and obviously a great product, I think uh, it can really help uh, consistency and, and can save you dollars and money and, and a lot of other things. Talk to me about what you meant there when you said over that, that topic point, I want to dive into that. Yeah. Can you repeat the question? You kind of went out right at the end. 
No, uh, the, 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 the question was the following. Uh, building a national brand and beyond, you, you sent over that topic. I was, I was just very, really curious. I have a, I have a partnership background that's really significant um, that allows me to build brands without too much money up front. So talk to us about how you went about that and, and, and your thoughts on how you built those brands or, or what you me meant when you sent over that topic of how you went about building a national brand without yeah. spending money. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I kind of briefly touched up upon this and I think it was the first question you asked or maybe the second, it was in regards to when you were asking me, um, uh, how did I get to different cities and different like incubators and accelerators, et cetera. So it kind of goes off of this where, you know, if you have a product or service that people cannot stop talking about that's already step one. If you, if you're, if you're checking off this box, now you move to step two, the next box to check off is how do you get these people to tell more people? And I don't mean like, it doesn't have to be um, the, the, the mass market or, you know, majority of human beings or you or Americans. I'm saying like more of a niche focus. So mine particularly was in startups and venture capital. So in that world. So how do I showcase that I had a great product, a great service, a great event experience for these founders? And then how do they, how do they tell more people? So once you create these vehicles to do just that, this is where that national brand comes in. And even though you know, not everybody in the country knows what Startup Bootcamp is, that's fine. I just need to know, I just need to be cognizant of the people that really care about something like this to know. So for instance, you know, the people that do run a big incubator out in California or New York, and, you know, I'm able to say, Hey, we should do an event in June. Are you available? And they do their due diligence or they just already heard of the bootcamp. Like, Oh yeah, we would love to do it. But so, you know, once you have a great product and you more people, especially niche space uh then you collect things of value that showcase just that so that means um testimonials on video testimonials in linkedin written testimonials etc so like the more proof the better um so then you have all of that going for you and then you continue to diversify and, and, and offer more you know products services or event experiences to reach a little bit more of the mass audience so for instance you know, in the past three years, I've been helping mainly startup founders, early stage startup founders. But then this past year, after COVID hit, uh, I started doing stuff for seed stage founders specifically, not just like early aspiring and pre-seed founders. Now I'm going after, you know, seed founders, people with um, whatever, four or five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars in revenue in year two, rather than going after the, the pre-seed founders with 100K in revenue in, in year one. So, you know, now I'm hitting up a different stage in the, in the, in the startup world, a different stage uh, in their journey. And then now, at literally two weeks ago, um, came to the conclusion that I'm also going to help now scale ups and corporations with internal uh, virtual events, just as a product offering. So... Then
demographic more and more and more, getting more visibility, uh, creating you know more opportunities, increasing revenue, and just having a, a stronger brand little by little without even spending money or raising money for this product or service that I'm offering. Do you want to dive a little bit in and, and, and give a plug to uh, how, you're, how you're taking this product internal? Dive a little bit more into how or what you're planning on doing to make that shift. Yeah, and w- when you say product internal, what do you mean by that? Because it was internal the whole time. Um, well, you, you said you were going to start helping um, companies internally start to launch their own type of events. You're going to kind of help. What I'm hearing is kind of help them kind of get that off the ground. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, no, let me clarify. Um, okay. So for pre-seed and seed stage startups, I put on workshops. I invite them to it, sell tickets to it. Yeah. They attend it. That's that's traditionally what I've done for three years. Yep. Moving forward, I'm about to announce additionally that I'm also going to um, give corporate entities, you know, larger corporations that are more established and scale-ups meaning startups that are not in the startup phase anymore. They used to be at one point and they're not, you know, they were four or five years ago. They're not anymore. Um, giving more established companies the ability to book ongoing events for their staff members, like panels, presentations, mentorship sessions with outside, you know, business professionals that come in and help the, the staff, um, virtual happy hours, you know, uh, uh, maybe a, a cool, uh, event about which McCall um, 401ks or you know something that's just meaningful and insightful so this is what I'm talking about so there's a difference because one of them um, one of the, the the arms is a promotion arm where we promote events sell tickets the second arm is an events arm where we help internal staff with ongoing engagement utilizing the virtual world since people are so used to it now. And a lot of companies need this because their employees, you know, went remote, whether that's fully, partially or whatever, and they want to feel included. So we do a classes on, you know, um, diversity inclusion. We do classes on uh, maybe a fun class, like on on wine tasting, the different kind of reds you can drink. We do a class on uh, breakout sessions with different mentorship, you know, opportunities from outside mentors. It's just enhancing the experience and, and it's going hopefully with their culture that they want to uh, produce and be known for uh, along with um, increasing skill sets and, and helping their skill sets of their staff internally. I would love to learn more about that because I think, um, as I told you before, I would love to continue to try to work with you. I think, I think there potentially could be some collaborations there. Have, have you done a lot of events or held, you know, even outside of the DEI? Have you done anything around leadership or people operations or employee experience or, or um, you know, talk to me about any of those categories that you may or may not have, have touched on yet with some of the internal internal uh, events at these organizations? Yeah, so the whole events arm is brand new. I have not done these type of events yet, but here's the thing. I have a Rolodex of startup founders, venture capitalists, mentors, public speakers. I, I have in the hundreds, maybe even the thousands at this point. So with that, if I wanted to launch something like this, it is quite easy for me because now with the events arm, I don't have to do the presentations like I do with the promotions events arm where I have to you know, sell tickets and do a lot of the speaking. With this new events arm, 
that is for internal staff of corporations and scale-ups, I book other speakers that want to go and speak on specific topics to these corporations. So I'm kind of just plugging the mentors slash presenters in wherever they wish to shed light mm-hmm. or provide guidance. Can you share how that business model will work on, on your end for anyone that may want to do something similar or is that, or is that a little too much into the sauce? Um, I mean, not really. I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm just charging a monthly subscription and I'm guaranteeing X amount of events for every company that I sign up. Um, so again, this is brand new. So I'm still like working out the price points to be exact, yeah. um, to be, to be transparent. I mean, I'm, I'm working out the price points, but that's pretty much it. I'm not reinventing the wheel, you know, so yeah. they, they would pay X amount. I would owe them X amount of events and they're happy because now that work is, you know, traditionally looked at as, as tedious or annoying to some people. They don't want to do it. Now it's handled for them. You know, they're, they're making 10, 15, 20, 50, 75 uh, million ARR what's three or four grand a month for six or seven events to engage their internal staff and help them and build culture. A hundred percent, man. I, I, lo- I love that. And again, it's not a recreation, but it's, it's something that was an easy pivot for you that I, I'm a big fan of. Um, what would you be charging? And again, you know, you already probably know why I'm asking, right? Like, you know, I'm running, I'm running four different companies right now with, with 12 or so people that I know for a fact my, my partners and I would, would love to jump on something like that. Are you are you charging folks like us or are you actually taking the monies that you make and, and divvying it out those monies to bring in exceptional speakers or exceptional workshop hosts and things of that nature? Or, or are we as the organizations um, paying to get access to go in and talk to the other organizations as well? So the organization is paying my company of to course, handle their events in a seamless manner. So they just show up and enjoy slash learn on a monthly basis. And then the speaker side, the speakers are more than willing to speak at events without even, you know, getting paid for it. I would say majority of the time, because it gives them a great opportunity. Now, sometimes it's opportunity for, of course, deal flow. Like if they're offering of course. services, sometimes it, it's, it's not that sometimes they just love giving back and just like, like, you know, just giving wisdom to, you know, uh, either entrepreneurs or corporations or whoever they're talking to. And then sometimes there's other alternatives. So it just depends, but I would say 99% of the time, the speakers are more than willing to speak without even getting paid. Just like I'm doing right now, tell you the truth. (laughs) I'm doing it just because you were, you know, you were uh, persistent. You're a good dude. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do it. Why not? You know? So that's exactly why somebody else would as well. A thousand percent. And yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely, I think uh, if I can even just say this ad hoc here, I think that may be something I really want to uh, activate that persistence, uh, that persistent pinging again. That's something that, again, I have um, my partners and I would love to, to tackle something like that. We are actively and always looking to jump into organizations and talk about the things that we talk about. Um, and uh, that that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm happy that you're deciding to make that pivot. And I think that'll be a very another strong revenue stream for you. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, it's still new, but I, I, for sure, I think it's, it makes sense. You know, I think that, uh, it makes a lot of sense, especially given the new landscape. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that, that this is kind of fell on their plate and they're trying to figure out how to do it. And maybe they just don't feel like, you know, committing the time 
to do it properly. So this is just an easy way out. And then uh, I have a good track record with this. I have a lot of mentors, a lot of professionals, a lot of speakers, um, a lot of, um, I guess, experience with hosting events too. So I know a lot about this kind of stuff and it just seems like an easy segue. Yeah. Before I let you get out of here, Phil, do, do me a solid here. Um, what's, what's one really tangible granular tip that you think, um, that you think some scale up organizations, you know, the, the founders within those or leaders or managers within those, what's something that you think they should hear right now? It doesn't have to necessarily be around, you know, prototypical leaders leadership or employee experience anything like that it could be super technical it could be in, in the marketing domain that that seems as though is a background of yours what's some advice that maybe you can give them around growing their businesses consistently staying strong um the the scale-ups is a, is, a, is a place that i've actually been playing in a lot more frequently here um that uh that i know there's a, some decent amount of listeners here so is there any kind of best practice or a tip just from your experience of, of, of running companies or just, I'm sure you advise, I, I'm sure you've been around the block of having folks in your network that have ran or, or, or were leaders inside of these type of scale-ups. What, what's one best practice can you, can you think of that, that maybe is super, super tangible, and super helpful? Uh, instead of giving one, I'll just ramble a few off the top of my head. Um, number one, culture is pretty much everything. And you set that right from the get-go, but it becomes harder and harder to maintain. Time goes on, unfortunately. But the, the tougher, the, 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 I guess, the, the playbook is from the beginning, the easier it is to maintain as time goes on. So by the time you're scale up, if you did all the right things in the startup mode when there was only two co-founders, then as long as you're abiding by your own rules, then you should be okay. But there's a lot of times where that does not happen and the ship is sinking because of that. So that's number one. Um, Number two, let's go on the marketing side. Uh, typically with, with marketing as a startup, as it moves to a scale up, you start shifting gears in regards to uh, organic versus paid. So with, with paid marketing, let's say that that's maybe 5% of your budget allocation and organic is like 95%. You're doing things that are much scrappy, uh, et cetera. And then as time moves on, year three, year five, year seven, like as time keeps going, it starts to shift where your paid is just starting to increase from 5% to 15 and 15% to 30, 30% to 50, 50% to 75. At some point that whole like scrappiness mentality and organic uh, marketing methods almost goes out the door, which is unfortunate because I don't think it should. I think it always should stay at around like 80 or 20%. Now I understand why people would wanna do uh, a higher um, uh, methodology, a higher paid route and keeping that methodology with a scale up because it's automation, it's easier. You can throw money at it because you have more of it. But the problem with that is you are oftentimes lazy um, just because you don't wanna do the things that used to not scale because now you're at scale up, if that makes sense. So um, I would still innovate. You know, I would still have think outside the box marketing tactics. I would still do, uh, I guess, a portion of your marketing efforts, keep it scrappy, um, never stop thinking that you're a startup even if you really aren't anymore. And I think, um, Jeff Bezos does that really well, even though he's not a quote unquote startup anymore. He hasn't been for a long time. He keeps like a lot of reminders around the office, like his original desk. It's like a piece of shit desk that he still has just because it reminded him of, you know, how frugal and, and how he came from nothing, um, et cetera. So um, that's one with, with, with marketing. And then um, three, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion. You know, I know you're a big proponent of this, but um, the more diverse 
uh, your people are and your staff, the better. And this comes from two ways. Like one, like a moral way, of course, like, you know, it's just a moral thing to do to, to have different kind of people and their outlooks and perspectives, their upbringing, it's just all different. But number two, uh, more of the, the capitalist view, it's actually better. There's better outcomes when, when people can think differently because you don't have that same set of eyes that have been through the same, you know, um, cycles in life and they have the same groups of friends and think the same way. You start thinking in a different manner, which usually is great for problem solving and innovation. So those are the three things I would say. Hopefully that was okay. No, that was really helpful. Then before I let you get out of here and, and, and plug anything you're, you're actively working on, which you've already talked uh, a lot about today, and then uh, some of the new initiatives you have and any other things you want to plug, I'll stick on one piece of DE&I that not a lot of folks are talking about, even the three collective partners I have on my team that are just really, really deep in that world. Um, you know, funny thing, Phil, you know, I'm an African-American clearly, um, but, you know, I grew up not really seeing any of that from when I say that, I mean, my mother always kind of taught me and raised me to just have uh, a wide range of friends and, and background and colors and, and, and different scenarios. And so I never really thought about me as black or white or Chinese. I never really thought of myself or anyone around me from that lens. And so when I got into entrepreneurship, the first piece of DNI information that I actually stumbled upon was uh, in the music industry. And I'll give you this example, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, are, you, are you are you a big hip hop fan at all? Yeah, but I think you already knew the answer to that before asking me. Maybe. <laughs> um, I, think, I think you did, but yes, big hip hop head. Good. Are you familiar with Dame Dash? Yes. Very underrated entrepreneur, just historically, period, number one, and definitely in the music industry for a fact. Um, something he used to scream a lot about recently, uh, before and then recently, the music industry, Sony, Columbia, uh, uh, Atlantic, these are record labels for those that don't know, um, their, their staff internally are, is not contingent from a diverse perspective to the, the product that they're actually rolling out. And so the, the A&Rs inside of the organization they are they are green lighting or, or stopping music and tours and marketing uh, content to roll out when they actually don't have the backgrounds or the perspectives of the artist and the stories and the perspectives and the frameworks that are actually being told within the music. And so there is often a disconnect and when they're trying to execute these rollouts and Dame Dash for years would be screaming, not understanding why there's not and he used to say, don't just say African-Americans, why are there not more, you know, if you have an Asian artist, why aren't there more Asian A&Rs on this particular album? Why are there more Af African-Americans on this particular album? If you are the A&R for Taylor Swift, why do you not have more Caucasian women that are living in, in the middle of America uh, A&Rs on this album? He used to always scream about that empathy and he would correlate it to the strategic elements of how it can make the product better in the rollout better. And he would, it really wasn't even about the color dynamic of trying to give people an opportunity. He was really more on the capitalist side. Like, it'll come out, it'll be a better product. It'll be a better rollout. 100%. That goes hand in hand with what I just said. I'm guessing that's why you brought it up. Yeah, man. Like, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, but that's something I think more companies could be thinking about as well. And I know that's funny coming from me, but like, if, and I always tell people this, Let's say you don't, let's say you don't give a shit about the color thing. Let's say you don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Let's say you're just one of those guys or gals that you don't agree with that perspective. I'm not going to probably be happy about that, but let's just say you are. 
from a capitalistic perspective, whatever product you're rolling out, let's at least make sure you know you're, you're you have individuals internally that look like the consumers that are actually utilizing your product. Right, I agree. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Expanding on that, if 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 not, it's fine. But I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that. I have thoughts on everything. Um, no, I'm just kidding. There's, <laughs> there's only certain things I have thoughts on. Usually that has to do with uh, business, startups, lifting weights, wine, cocktails, good food, and travel. That's my bucket. If you talk to me outside of that, like any items, I probably don't have much to say, to be honest. I'll probably just listen, have the conversation on my head. But with those buckets, I can literally just talk all day about it. So uh, yes, of course I have you know something to say about it. Number one, what you're saying has a lot to do with strategic distribution along with empathy. And it, it, it's just fancy words basically, meaning you should be able to relate to your consumer. And the better you can relate to your consumer with the processes and procedures that you have internally in house, the more likely you're going to sell more units and be more successful with whatever channels you're, you're trying to pursue. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. There's this, uh, there's this girl in my boot camp that just happened last weekend, actually. And she has, um, she has a startup that basically helps small businesses, nail salons. And it's like a, you know, a technology play. It's an app, et cetera. Um, her boots on the ground, instead of, you know, hiring just anyone, she hired people that looked like and sounded like, AKA spoke the same language uh, of the people that own the nail salons. And I'm sure you can guess what nationality, ethnicity they are. And this is how she penetrated the markets. And I don't think she was doing, I don't think there was anything wrong with what she did. I think if anything, it's right, it's strategic. Those people are gonna relate better. And, the, and, if, and of course, that's how she got great traction because the boots on the ground were able to sell so many of the nail salons and activate them. And that's how they told their people to download the app and start utilizing the service. She got like a 5% cut for every transaction, but that's, that's just goes hand in hand with the scenario you're just speaking of. It's just, you know, maybe not apples to apples, but it's apples to oranges. So I just wanted to bring that, um, I don't know if it's an analogy, but story up just to see if it, it resonates with you. It, it definitely does, man. It definitely does. Um, well, look, man, this has been a great conversation um, for the listeners here. If you heard any choppiness, I'm going to do my very, very best to, uh, to, 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 to patch this up. But I would say about 85% of this content was pretty smooth here. So, so thank you so much, Phil. Um, you know, get us out of here with any plugs, any, any thoughts, any last words, and, uh, and then we'll close yeah. this out. Yeah. Follow Anthony on all outlets. He's a good dude. He has good questions. He's doing good work. Um, follow me on Clubhouse, on the uh, Clubhouse app. I'm starting to do some amazing events every week. This week, I have some powerhouse venture capitalists and angels coming, and I usually do one-hour panel where we kind of unpack a specific topic. So this week, it's KPIs. It's Saturday at 12 p.m., and then at 1 p.m. CST, we move into pitches from the audience. It's always a great turnout, usually between 100 and 500 people. Um, so follow me on Clubhouse. Phil's Hungry is my handle on all social media handles. 
Um, I know I just handled twice, but uh, but yeah, I, I, my name is Phil's Hungry on all social media handles, just because I always am. Um, and then if you're an early stage startup, hit me up, come to my events that I do once a month for the pre-seed slash seed workshops. And then I guess finally, if you're a corporation or a scale up that's interested in you know engaging your staff with ongoing premium virtual events with outside mentors and presenters, then hit me up for that too. My email is phil at startupbootcamp.com, spelled with a K in camp. And that's it. Keep grinding. Um, don't let the small shit bother you. Keep your head up like Tupac said. Oh, like Tupac said. I love that. Hey, uh, hey, Phil, I really appreciate it, man. Again, I, I just want to keep saying this and keep putting it in your head. Little pings here. Um, stay open-minded, man, because I, I have a few thoughts on how we can really help each other. Um, you're clearly a good person to know with the work that I'm doing. So uh, I'd be a fool to not try to stay in touch with you and, and, and leverage that. And uh, I think I'm a decent person to know and I may be able to do something to bring value to you. So um, let's, uh, I'll, I'll ping you offline here about that. And uh, thank you so much again for today. You're very welcome, man. Talk soon. Talk soon.